This season of The Francis Effect is sponsored in part by Franciscan Media, seeking to spread the gospel in the spirit of St. Francis. Franciscan Media publishes books by authors like Richard Rohr, Heather King, and Ronald Rollheiser. Get 25% off your first order in the store when you use the code FRANCISFX, that's Francis, the letter F, and the letter X, at franciscanmedia.org. That's franciscanmedia.org. This season of The Francis Effect is brought to you by Liturgical Press in Collegeville, Minnesota. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality, evolving to serve the changing needs of the Christian church. They produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all readers looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Hello and welcome to the Francis Effect Podcast. My name is David Dalt. I host a radio show called Things Not Seen about culture and faith, and I'm an assistant professor of Christian spirituality at the Institute of Pastoral Studies at Loyola University, Chicago. I'm here with my good friends Heidi Schlumpf and Father Dan Haran. Heidi is executive editor and vice president of National Catholic Reporter, a publication that connects Catholics to church, faith, and the common good with independent news, analysis, and spiritual reflection. Father Dan is the director of the Center for Spirituality and professor of philosophy, religious studies, and theology at St. Mary's College in Notre Dame, Indiana. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss news and events through a lens of our shared Catholic faith. Father Dan and Heidi, welcome to you both. Father Dan, how have you been? David, Heidi, good to be with you as always. I'm doing well. It's that wonderful time of year between the resurrection of the Lord and the commencement of our graduates at our respective academic institutions. And so that just means busy, busy, busy. But things are good. And the weather is taking a turn for the better around here, which is nice to see as well for those of us in the Midwest area. Some exciting news on on my end, an edited volume that I co-edited with a a friend and colleague titled The Human in the Dehumanizing World, Reexamining Theological Anthropology and Its Implications published by Orbis Books, just came out. We're very excited about that. That was co-edited with Jessica Koblenz, and there are a dozen contributors who authored chapters in this volume, and it's extraordinary. So it's an academic text, so if people are looking to buy it, it might be a little pricey. But if you have an interest in theological anthropology or various sort of structural uh, systems of oppression in our modern world, this is a book you might want to check out if you're a theology nerd like so many of us are and so many of our listeners may be. But but things are good. Things things are, are are fairly good. Heidi, how are you doing? I'm well. Well, congratulations on the book, Dan. That's always exciting when you finally get to see them in print. I'm doing great. I'm just back. I've been a week back from a week's vacation. So during Holy Week, our family was able to travel to Arizona, where we visited with my folks who are snowbirds there. And we also did a little bit of sightseeing, went down to Bisbee, which was near the border. We toured a abandoned copper mine and did a cave tour. So the theme of the trip, I said, was underground. (laughs) So for people like me that can get a little claustrophobic, I was a little nervous, but I did okay. 
a shout out to St. Patrick's Parish in Scottsdale, Arizona. I was there for Palm Sunday, and they really do an amazing liturgy there. The pastor's a really great preacher, and there's so much enthusiasm. So it's great to visit parishes around the country when we're traveling. David, how are you doing? Doing well. My health continues to be a little erratic. I am on the the journey towards healing, but as with all chronic illnesses, every day is its own adventure. So I, I appreciate very much the prayers of listeners and those that have been wishing me well along the way. I am in that eight-week window that, that allows me eventually at the end of it to get the vaccine for shingles. So I'm happy to be progressing towards that. I hear that some of these lingering problems get cleared up oftentimes when the first round of vaccine is administered. So I'm keeping my fingers crossed for that. I spent the morning writing on a couple of book projects, and that's always fun when my head and heart are in tune to allow that to happen. And as Dan said, we're reaching towards the end of the semester at Institute of Pastoral Studies as well. And as much as I enjoy teaching and interacting with students, I think this year I'm going to enjoy the time off in May to just have a little bit of uh, breathing room and to rest and recuperate a bit before the onslaught of the fall comes upon us. So all things are good. My family's good, but it's just been a it's been a very interesting 2022 so far, and I'm I'm very glad for the chance to get a, a moment to catch up with the two of you. That always fills my soul and, uh, and a chance to talk about some important topics. So today, on that note, we're going to be talking about three important topics. We're going to be talking about what Governor DeSantis has been doing down in Florida, particularly around the Walt Disney Company. And we're going to be looking at the 50th anniversary of the Social Justice Lobbying Organization Network. And then we'll be picking up with an analysis of some of what went on in the elections over in France this week. Before I tag us out, do either of you want to uh, say anything else in the topper or are we good to go? I just have a question. We, get, we got so bogged down with talking about personal updates. Congratulations to us on the Wilbur. Is oh that my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> so, so for listeners that don't know, there are various organizations that help to promote religious news around the country. One of those organizations is the Religion Communicators Council. And we got news just recently that the RCC has given the Francis Effect the 2022 Wilbur Award, which is their award for excellence in broadcasting, for one of our episodes. And so we got the best podcast episode of 2022 among religious media at the Religious Communicators Council. The official ceremony and the official announcement is yet to come. It'll be in mid-May when that happens, and we'll make sure to to put that out. But we have been told that we're allowed to say to people that we're an award-winning podcast, so we're very happy about that. Yeah, and I'll just add, too, for listeners who may not be familiar with who's up for these kinds of nominations and contention, as it were, but... It just so happens that the 2021 and 2020 winners were both National Public Radio NPR. So we, I don't know who we were up against, but the Francis Effect is in a long line with NPR and CBS Radio and the CBC out of Canada Radio. These, I, I couldn't help but go down the rabbit hole to see who else had won in this category in previous years. So I guess congratulations to us, but especially to you, David, who is our trustworthy co-host for sure, but also the master engineer and technician here and producer. So thank you. You know, it's a, I'm, I'm always honored to be a part of this with you, Heidi and you, David. So 
Congrats. Listeners can't see it, but I'm blushing right now, and I'm very <laughs> grateful for those kind words. So I also want to thank all of our listeners who support us and who encourage us because, again, oftentimes it's the three of us showing up, talking on Zoom, and shouting into the void, and it's really helpful to have the feedback that we get on Twitter and the emails that we get saying that, we are, that we're speaking in a way that resonates with you. I'm very happy for that. If you are feeling like you are on an island in Catholicism and you're looking for other people and other voices to help to keep you buoyant, that's largely what we wish to be. And so I'm grateful for the added publicity that comes with an award, but I'm especially grateful that it means that it might help us to connect with other people that are looking for that kind of connection. Well, and with that, we're going to take a quick break and then we'll be back to talk about Governor Ron DeSantis down in Florida and what's been going on with the Walt Disney Company. You're listening to The Francis Effect. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Dan Horan, and I'm here with Heidi Schlumpf and David Dalt. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss news and events through a lens of our shared Catholic faith. It has been a busy couple of months for Florida's Republican Governor Ron DeSantis. At the end of March, he signed the controversial, quote, Parents' Rights and Education bill, which had been recently passed by the Florida legislature. This new law has been nicknamed by its detractors as, quote, Don't Say Gay Bill, unquote. A portion of the new law reads that, and I quote, classroom instruction by school personnel or third parties on sexual orientation or gender identity may not occur in kindergarten through grade three or in a manner that is not age appropriate or developmentally appropriate for students in accordance with state standards, unquote. However, the text of the law is very vague as to the meaning of terms like age and developmentally appropriate leaving many to fear that the law could be used as a gag order to restrict all recognition of the existence of LGBTQ plus persons in the classroom and beyond. Now, in April, the Walt Disney Corporation has found itself in the crosshairs of Florida's Governor DeSantis. Though Disney was a donor to DeSantis's 2020 election campaign, Disney and DeSantis have clashed over COVID-19 protections at the Florida Disney properties and particularly around mask mandates. Then, responding to intense pressure from his employees, Disney CEO Bob Chapek said recently that he would support the repeal of Florida's Parental Rights and Education Act. Governor DeSantis responded that Disney had, quote, crossed the line. This week, at the urging of the governor, Florida has revoked Disney's independent special district status during a special session of the legislature for redistricting. David, you've been following these developments. What are we to make of all this? What does this mean for Disney, and what does it tell us about Governor Ron DeSantis? Well, in the immediate moment, it means that Disney has suddenly been shifted from the burden that it had for the properties and area, a, a, a number of square miles, I forget exactly what it is, like 40 square miles of land there where it maintained the roads. It basically operated the fire department and other sorts of public services. It subtended the utilities. Now all of that is being shifted to Florida taxpayers in these areas, in these counties. And so there's going to be an effect on the the tax base there in the sense that property taxes and other taxes are going to increase if this law stays in place and is not modified. But I think that there's another aspect of this as well, because this came about 
in concert with a special session that was being held in the Florida legislature, which was designed to strip some congressional districts and rearrange some congressional districts to basically redraw the map of who gets to be a representative in Florida. And so to some extent, this is a shot across the bow of a multi-billion dollar corporation. In another sense, this is uh, camouflage and distraction from some very real voter suppression that is going on as well. There's a lot that we can say about how this helps to position DeSantis for a possible presidential bid. But also, I think that just in terms of like politics, uh, I forget which commentator said it, but basically... What this says about the Republican Party, at least in Florida, as a business-focused party versus a populist working-class party, there's a real question here about who DeSantis is serving if he's no longer serving the interests of business. So there's a lot of things in play here, and I'd be interested in what you all are thinking as well. Well, what I'm seeing from the Catholic angle to this story is, first of all, that DeSantis is a Catholic, right, and a conservative politician who often uses some of the culture war social issues to rile up his base and get them them enthused. And so this just seems like another one of those examples where, as you say, David, it's interesting that he's willing to turn off his business base (laughs) to appeal to the people who are concerned about woke capitalism. So I think what's interesting is I haven't seen a lot of response from Catholics about this. Obviously, LGBTQ and activists are very concerned about the don't say gay law. The bishop in Orlando hasn't said anything. There hasn't been any sort of conversation about this in official Catholic circles. But there was a piece in a conservative Catholic publication by someone from Christendom College, where he was talking about how the whole family-friendly image of Disney is somehow gone now. And he's not just talking about this stuff, but just even criticizing the themes of many of the movies in which strong young female characters push back against oppression in society. So it's something we've come to expect from a certain wing of Catholicism, but it's sad when, once again, this is the portrait being painted of a Catholic politician. I'll say that I have lots of thoughts about this, and I've been following not super closely, but fairly closely the back and forth here. I am personally not a huge fan of Disney, Um, not one of these adult Disney heads, these people who love Disney, which I'll come back to in a moment in terms of Ron DeSantis and others alienating a key demographic, one that I imagine is by and large disproportionately queer when you think about adults who are drawn to Disney characters and celebrating all things Disney. Of course, not everybody, but quite a few. And that's been the subject of of a lot of uh, discussion. I know John Oliver had a segment where he talked about this, among others. But I think back to the legislation itself before what has led to this kind of this divide between DeSantis's administration and the Disney Corporation is premised on a straw argument. There are these like pseudo concerns that are being raised that kindergartners through third graders are somehow getting some sort of explicit graphic sexual education, which is the presumption that the, the written, the law as written implies as if this were a problem that needs to be addressed. It's, it's a solution without a problem, as it were. And I think this goes back to what we talked about in the topper of this section, which is the ambiguity of the language is, is important such that what do you do with a kindergartner or a second grader? 
whose parents are of the, of the same gender or, or are gay or lesbian or a sibling, or if the kid themselves are in a process of coming to understand themselves in some way or another and want to just acknowledge these fundamental factual realities, this would seem to criminalize or at least problematize that situation, that sort of phenomenon. And I think that's really dangerous. And this is where folks who are opposed to the bill coined it as don't say gay, which is the only way you get around this is by not acknowledging the reality at all. I think this is a, a real issue that needs further, further investigation. The other thing, too, is this move to the right. DeSantis is, and David, I'm curious to hear what you have to say about this, with an eye toward 2024 and those who are chomping at the bit to be Trump's successor or potentially Trump's competitor if they find enough steam, as it were, to go up against him in a Republican primary. And so I think this kind of move to the extreme right, to the absurd right, in fact, is part of that strategy, if I understand that. But I want to go back to this don't say gay characterizing of this legislation and the response on the part of the Republicans, including DeSantis, which is so insidious, right? That they've been saying, well, if you are not supporting this legislation, then you are somehow, quote, grooming children for predation or sexual abuse or something like this, which raises all kinds of very serious concerns and flags, red flags, yellow flags, rainbow flags. And what I mean by that is to assume that sexual orientation is something that is groomed, as it were, or somehow a co-option of somebody's identity or something like this falls into a very distorted understanding of sexuality, human sexuality, sexual maturity, sexual, ide sexual identity and orientation. So the idea here is somehow a fear that somebody else, teachers, kindergarten teachers, what have you, are going to make kids gay or make kids lesbian or make kids whatever. And, and the whole thing is really disturbing because it doesn't follow science. It doesn't follow the experience of LGBTQ people. It doesn't follow reality. So those are at least my initial thoughts. But David, I'm thinking about this 2024 campaign. Is, are you seeing this as well? Yes. And before we get to that, I just, you know, there, there are echoes and ripples of this tactic of being anti-grooming, not even wanting students to be exposed to the possibility of an alternate view of the world. This goes back to some Supreme Court cases from the 1980s, I think in particular of one that involved a mother named Vicki Frost, where even the possibility that her child could hear in a classroom that creationism was not the truth was anathema to her. And she ended up going forward with a, a case that made it all the way to the Supreme Court to try and basically throttle even the mention of non-religious science or non-religious-based science in the classroom. So this is a tactic that's been around for a long time. With regard to the presidential bid question, I'm thinking back to uh, a tweet thread that David Frum put out a couple of days ago, I think. And I was interested in it. I don't always agree with David Frum, but one of the things that Frum said in his analysis was Trump obviously could, President Trump obviously could gather large crowds and obviously could really ignite a population. And the Republican Party seems to be looking for someone now who can do similar sorts of ignitions with populations. The difference being that Donald Trump was largely a loose cannon. He couldn't be controlled by the upper echelons of the Republican Party. And in Frum's analysis, he said that's the difference. Ron DeSantis absolutely is going to walk lockstep with what Republican leadership says. And so there, I think that, that we're seeing kind of a modification of the Trump model here. And, and this goes to what was going on in the Trump presidency and some things that we've said before on the show. 
that there is a real sense that the Trump presidency was kind of the test balloons of fascism. Let's see how extreme we can get the language. Let's see how we can talk about other countries, people from other countries, people in our own countries using othering language and hostility language. And let's see what of that gets us in trouble and what of that doesn't get registered at all. And I think now that playbook has been in place for four plus years, we now have people following in those footsteps, now engaging with that playbook. And we're seeing it in Texas. We're seeing it in Florida with these anti-transgender laws. And we're seeing it now with Ron DeSantis being willing to take on a multi-billion dollar corporation, the largest employer in Florida outside of NASA, and willing to like basically say, it doesn't matter to us how much it hurts our economic base as long as we get a chance to score the points. And I, so for me, it's an interesting time to be looking at this because it, again, so rearranges the, the playing board for what I would have expected from Republicans. When I was growing up, they were the party of business. They would never have gone against a corporation. And now they are undermining basically the largest corporation in Florida in order for this to happen. And I, but then again, they've also removed a tremendous financial burden from the largest corporation in Florida. Disney's now going to have to pay taxes, but it no longer has to run the fire department and no longer has to maintain the roads. Like, it's interesting to see how things have been rearranged now. So I would say it is odd or just it doesn't seem to fit that at the same time they're willing to go against one base to appeal to another base. And you see this as a strategy. It also is saying to me that they're willing, the Republicans and are willing to take these risks, given that the, the culture as a whole is moving towards more acceptance of LGBTQ people. It is true that the Republican Party has been able to rile up a certain segment of religious folks around issues in education and this concern about what's happening in schools that's not really happening. But I mean, Disney was, in my mind, and I'm going to confess my own like Disney stuff here too, so not a huge fan, not growing up with, the, I mean, we did go to Disney World as a family when I was young, but my husband is not a theme park person. And in fact, we had no plans to take our kids to Disney. And so my sister and her husband, who are not like Disney crazies or anything, they're just really nice aunt and uncle who offered and, and took our kids to Disney for us so that they could have that experience because we're not big Disney fans. But what I recall about Disney when I was living in Southern California in the 90s was that they were anti-gay. They had these bans against gay same-sex dancing at their because they used to have like at night it would be a club at Disneyland. And they've just moved to where the rest of the culture has, which is this level of acceptance now because it's become something that's acceptable. And I think for reli some religious right-wing folks, that's what's really scary, is that the otherwise model of big business, the model of family friendliness, now is part of the rest of the culture saying, this issue that religious folks, some right-wing religious folks are still pressing is not where we're moving. And so that's scary to that crowd. Yeah, it's interesting, too, that my biggest objection to Disney has been the prohibitive costs of it. I mean, it's very expensive. And when you think about these families who go down there, I remember I was on a flight once to Orlando, again, not Disney related, but for something else. And I overheard two dads of two different families talking to one another across the airplane aisle. 
And they were just comparing what the cost was to take their families of four or five down for a week's vacation at the Disney Resort. And it was tens of thousands of dollars. It was just a lot of money. And so that's just an aside, not related to anything else. Basically to say that I'm not like coming in here hardcore pro Disney, but I do think Disney's on the right side of not only history, because I know there will be some listeners as there are some readers of some of my previous writing who say, well, who cares what, quote, history has to say? What does God have to say? So let me comment on that. I think God has a lot to say about the discrimination against any kind of people, period. And Disney has a lot of sins to atone for. I think the class issue is one of them. I think we cannot, you know, brush past the fact that it was founded by a man who is very clearly and historically verifiably anti-Semitic. I think that there are really dangerous, particularly in the older films, but even in the more recent cartoons of the 90s in particular, Disney stories and, and, and portrayals that present gender roles that are not helpful, particularly for young girls and women, and narratives and portrayals of ethnicities and cultures and identities that are problematic. So that said, we have corporations, as Mitt Romney famously said, corporations are people too, at least according to U.S. law to some degree, and people can change. So let's hope corporations can as well. And it seems against their own wishes, the Disney Corporation has been forced into a corner where they've had to make a choice. And I think the choice is the right one, given the circumstances. I will say, though, picking up on something you said, David, and something you said, Heidi, David, you talked about Ron DeSantis being appealing to some members of the GOP because he's more controllable. He's more of a traditional sort of politician who can walk lockstep with the GOP. And Heidi, your point about like where culture is going and where the world is. And for me, I'm always thinking in generational terms, where's Gen Z? I'll tell you, Gen Z is not going to be amused with the GOP's ostensible lockstep if this is the, the battle, the hill that the GOP wants to die on is resurrecting something that was very compelling in 2004 for a certain a broader portion of the electorate. When you had George W. Bush, who was very unpopular running for re-election, and there was this push to have a lot of constitutional amendments on various state ballots that, that were prohibiting same-sex marriage. That's all out the window. We, we're not in that world anymore. There is, in some sense anyways, at least some equitable growth there in terms of how LGBTQ people are treated, at least with same-sex marriage equality in the United States. So I see this as a very short-sighted and I think a very, I would say, poor horse to put one's money on in, in terms of DeSantis, particularly in the GOP more generally, if that's what they're looking at. It may work for one election. I don't know. But I don't think it's going to work two elections out eight years from now. I, I just don't think when the baby boomers are no longer and they aren't right now, the largest generational representation in the electorate is our millennials. And the question is getting people of my generation out to the polls. But when it's millennials and Gen Z who are ruling the electorate, this is not going to pass even by conservative fiscally or even to some degree socially conservative young adults, they do not see this the same way that DeSantis is portraying it. So I think it's stupid politically. It's amoral. It's unethical. I think it's problematic. And, and as you've both pointed out, too, I don't think it makes any sense in terms of business either. I don't understand what's going on. So I just want to point out, since we've shifted to thinking about the religious questions, Heidi, at the top of the segment, you mentioned that Governor DeSantis is Roman Catholic. I just want to point out to listeners that 
people, politicians like Governor DeSantis get a lot of cover from the leadership of the church for what they are doing. And folks that have listened to this show for a while know that we have a real sort of focus on vulnerable populations and the protection and uh, solidarity with, with the vulnerable and those who are in the crosshairs of whatever power structures are out there. And this is not that. This is a, a situation where as a way of distracting from real damage that is being done to vulnerable populations, both transgender persons in Florida, but also voting populations, minority voting populations in Florida. This has become the story for a couple of news cycles, and we're talking about it, but let's not lose what's going on underneath. But the same cover that is being given to politicians like DeSantis from our Roman Catholic clergy for decisions like this, that also corresponds to cover for these other actions that are directly harming vulnerable populations populations. So we need to not lose sight of that. And we need, to the extent that we can, to hold our bishops and our leadership accountable when those sorts of things happen, because we are here for the least of these. I mean, that's where Jesus told us in Matthew 25 that Jesus will always reliably show up. And so if we want to be with Jesus, we need to be standing with those that are in the crosshairs of power. Governor DeSantis, forgive me, is not standing there. And many of our bishops, unfortunately, are not standing there. They are instead somewhere else. And uh, that is what we need to always be thinking about and talking about. I unfortunately think that we're going to have to come back to this conversation again in weeks to come. But for right now, we're going to leave it here. You're listening to The Francis Effect. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Heidi Schlumpf, and I'm here today with Dan Horan and David Dalt. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss a variety of topics from a perspective informed by our shared Catholic faith. On Sunday, the people of France went to the polls to cast their vote for the next president. It was the second time in as many weeks that voters cast votes, this weekend's election being the runoff that pit sitting President Emmanuel Macron against his second-time rival, Marine Le Pen, the far-right politician who's the leader of the National Rally Party, previously known as the National Front Party until 2018. The National Rally Party was founded in 1972 by Le Pen's father, Jean-Marie Le Pen, and prides itself on a platform of nationalism, nativism, and anti-immigration positions. Sunday's runoff election between Macron and Le Pen replayed the choice between the two, a centrist and a far-right extremist, during the last presidential election in France. In 2017, while Macron, who has now won his second and constitutionally mandated last term in office, beat Le Pen both times, he did so with a smaller margin this time. Polling in the days leading up to the runoff election suggested that Macron's re-election was likely, but far from guaranteed. Le Pen's share of the electorate and growing support among working-class French citizens suggested that a win for the far right was not out of question. That Macron did succeed, even by a smaller margin, has been universally hailed in the West as good news with European and American governments and major newspapers praising the results, particularly in light of the current situation in Eastern Europe with Russia's unprovoked, unnecessary, and ongoing war in Ukraine. 
Le Pen was famously, and likely to her electoral detriment, supportive of Russia and President Vladimir Putin. As the Catholic Washington Post columnist E.J. Dion noted on Monday, quote, the defeat of the far-right leader Marine Le Pen dealt an important blow to the nationalist forces in Europe focused on limiting immigration and marginalizing immigrants, particularly Muslims. It was thus a victory for democracy as well, end quote. Dan, I know you've been following the French election. What do you make of what unfolded on Sunday, and how are you thinking about the results and the implications of the results? Yeah, in what seems perhaps atypical for me, I was very closely watching this election for a number of reasons. And in order to explain the context why this past weekend I was so interested in what was going on Sunday and leading up to the election, which as a side note, I think a Sunday is probably not a bad day to hold a national election where people don't have to, generally speaking, risk losing their job or take time off of work or school or something like that. But that's neither here nor there. There are lots of things that need to be reformed about our own election system in the United States. But in order to get a sense of the kind of visceral feeling that I had going into this election, you have to rewind the clock to 2016. And I'm not just talking about November 8th, 2016, the U.S. presidential election. I'm talking about late spring, early summer 2016. I remember very vividly waking up the morning of the Brexit vote and seeing the uh, news alert on my phone after turning it on or turning off the Do Not Disturb. And being shocked by what was going on. I had been in the United Kingdom just a few months earlier. I had talked to a number of folks, including a woman from Scotland who lived in London, who's an acquaintance of mine and, and a colleague in certain academic areas. And I remember having breakfast with her one morning and, and just chatting and saying, what do you think about this? And this was on the heels of a kind of failed referendum of, of Scotland to separate itself from the United Kingdom in a formal way. Because of this would have been a sign that we're really in this. We want to be a part of the EU. This is not going to be an issue. And so I think that was the most shocked I had been. Fast forward, obviously, to November 2016, and we see the election of Donald Trump. Again, very shocking for a certain portion of the population, not so shocking for many others. And then the following year, we have the last French presidential election in 2017, and the same sort of issue was at hand. Is this going to be a move to the right, and some would even say uh, near fascism, or is this going to be a rebuke of that? And frankly, going into the 2017 French presidential election, I was not very hopeful because I thought common sense would have dictated that all the Brits that I know, and I know many very well, and know England fairly well, I would have thought that the United Kingdom would, would not have voted for Brexit, especially in a referendum election that was completely unnecessary. With all due respect to the late, prime, well, he's still alive, but the former prime minister, David Cameron, the whole thing was a debacle. And yeah, I can tell I'm getting a little foggy. I'm getting a little bit stressed out even thinking about this right now because it was so upsetting to me at the time and remains such. And then with Trump and then, so... On the one hand, I had it was a little bit of a deja vu. Sunday afternoon when the polls closed and Marine Le Pen officially conceded with Macron having something like 58% at that point of the estimated uh, returns, I, I was able to breathe a little bit of a sigh of relief. But we're recording this on Monday morning and a lot of the national papers and international papers for that matter have a lot of op-ed pieces and editorials talking about we can't assume that this is just a check mark that everything's fine and everything's moving forward fine. Again, Le Pen had a higher percentage of the vote than she did five years ago. 
Macron was neck and neck at some points within just a week of the election in the national polling in anticipation of Sunday's vote. And so I have a lot of thoughts about what this portends. I have a lot of thoughts about what we might think more globally and what we might think more locally here in the United States. But I'm curious about what you two are thinking. Heidi and David, what are your senses? Did you have, were you, were you breaking out into cold sweats or walking into the church as I did on Sunday morning with a prayer? In addition to the people, for the people of Ukraine and those suffering from the pandemic, I'm like, dear Lord, be with the people of France. Well, I found myself thinking a lot about a 2017 article by Emma Green that really looked at the complex relationship between the candidate Marine Le Pen and Catholicism and the way in which her Catholic identity played both in into the 2017 election and the current election. France and this has come up when I've had people on as guests on my show, Things Not Seen, particularly I'm thinking of uh, Jacques Berlinerblau, who writes a lot on secularism, but also my friend Jay Wexler from Boston University, who also writes on the kind of importance of a secular deposit in American discourse. France has a very different relationship to secularism and to religion publicly than we do. But there's an interesting parallel, I think, for me, between the way in which Le Pen wears her Catholicism and then takes it off, blinkers it, and the way a lot of our politicians here in the United States, particularly our Catholic politicians, will blinker their particular Catholic identity. So for me, that's as instructive as anything. Listeners will know that I'm not walking into church very much right now because of the relationship between our leadership and a lot of these politicians, and because of a lot of the ways in which, as I've said before on this particular episode, the ways in which we have really blinded ourselves to the needs of the poor and the vulnerable in favor of the powerful and the profitable. And so I have real cynicism right now about all electoral politics, partly because it has just been taken over by these cults of personality and it is so removed from the common good. Uh, so I, I look at the French election the same way that I look at what's going on, as you mentioned, in Great Britain with Brexit. When I look towards our own elections that are coming up, I just I have a real bad feeling about all of this. But Heidi, I'd be interested if you can bring any optimism into the conversation or if you wish to join me here in my pessimist corner. <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> I'm usually a, a glass half empty kind of person. Now, of course, the news that came out of Slovenia this morning, too, was also positive. And so I think some people are linking those two together. In Slovenia, the the, the populist prime minister lost uh, an election and that bodes well as, as well. But I guess I can't be too excited, especially when I look at some of the analyses of the Catholic vote in France. You can tell from Dan's much better French pronunciation than mine, that I'm not a real uh, Francophile. I've been there once, but I'm not super familiar with French culture or language, obviously. But what my understanding is about the French is that you have the rise of, as you talked about, the secular identity and the decline of the power of the church, although I think it still has power there. And what I was reading about was this thing that sounds very familiar where you had Catholic voters voting for the right-wing candidates over culture war issues or issues around identity. And we had a nicely reported piece, and I can share it so we can put it in the show notes, from a reporter in France who was talking about Catholic voters in advance of the election and just the concern about how the anti-immigration rhetoric coming from the right-wing 
the two right-wing candidates were attracting a significant Catholic vote. So it's, I think it said 40% of practicing Catholics voted for one of the two right-wing Catholics in the first election. So I think some of the bishops had pushed back against that previously back in 2017. And some bishop, I think at least one bishop did say something about this idea to stay away from this yearning for this past glory, because the anti-Muslim, anti-immigration sentiment clearly is not something that's reflected by our Pope right now. So, yeah, I mean, I'm relieved as you are, Dan, but also concerned that for so many of these stories that we are commenting on here, there's just such a refrain of Catholic being synonymous with right-wing political rhetoric. Well, and I think something you've brought up well and, and often, Heidi, with American elections is that the Catholic bloc is not a helpful demographic to think about because other kind of contributing factors or identity markers play as much, if not more, a role. And so I'm thinking some of the breakdown of the polling from yesterday, we're recording on Monday, yesterday, Sunday's election, was that there was a great geographic split. And so the more rural, the, the less urban populations in France, which may be, and this I, I don't know, you're giving me much more credit than I deserve. I'm not an expert on France, but where you have a greater percentage of those likely to identify in a, a society like France today as Catholic or as religious in any sense, may be found outside of, of the urban centers, they tended to go to, toward the right-wing candidates as well, generally speaking, as a block. It's also interesting, again, I, I, listeners will know I'm very interested in some of these demographic breakdowns in terms of generation. So age plays a big role in this too, and it's a curious shift that it takes. So interestingly enough, the older population supported Macron in, the, in a way that is a little bit different than our sort of stereotypical American Fox News blue hair TV watchers, right, that watch Tucker Carlson and go to bed and vote for the right wing. The older population more, more or less supported the sitting president. It was this kind of center group, the middle-aged sort of category that was a bit more fractured and slightly more increasingly supported Le Pen in, in this election than last time. But the younger group, those 18 to 34, were, as, as at least one reporter pointed out, much more inclined to radical politics, a sort of more extreme politics, but not the right-wing extreme politics. Think here more of Bernie Sanders, AOC, left-wing, democratic socialist sort of politics, a category, of course, that doesn't carry the same sort of negative weight in Europe as it does, for instance, in the United States. I found that very interesting, too, because it tracks along some of the same lines we were talking about with the whole Disney DeSantis fracturing, which is that younger generations, particularly around social issues, are not necessarily going to go lockstep with these middle-aged or older party sort of careerists like Le Pen, for instance, who's the daughter of the founder of this far-right political party. I also think that one of the things that I find fascinating is that, it, that the tracks or parallels very much with a lot of the angst in the United States that allows for some of this far-right interest and support is centered around this fear of immigration and the fear that sort of French nationals or white U.S. citizens will be, quote, displaced or will no longer have a place or are struggling to form an identity in society and or whatever, however you want to describe it. Then that seems to have been um, the kind of key message that Le Pen's campaign was emphasizing. And I think it's a, it's a serious issue that needs to be addressed kind of head on how, I'm not entirely sure, 
But I think this is, again, where there's a religious element and there's an ethical element and a moral sort of obligation we have to recognize that the dignity and value of all people, <laughs> independent of all these other identity markers and in line with them. And so, I don't know, I just think that's very interesting because it's a similar sort of anxiety and fear that we see play out in, in U.S. politics and U.S. ecclesial life as well. I think, Dan, you're right in drawing some parallels to the U.S. On the other hand, there's some di many differences between the U.S. and Europe. What's interesting to me is how we are seeing this cross-pollination where sometimes you have some um, political actors and not just politicians, but uh, people in the right wing uh, political groups traveling to Europe and being part of trying to learn from Europe, specifically to Hungary and this sort of thing, trying to bring what's happening there back back to us and, and vice versa and the sharing of this move towards fascism. So it it is overall good news that I think at least this week we can celebrate with a little bit of a phew here. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. I would also add that I was impressed that Macron, in a way that so few American politicians do, really reached out. I, I think Joe Biden tried this a bit after his election, but it was a much more contentious election in so many ways. Again, Marine Le Pen, like she conceded very quickly in a way Trump has mm. never formally conceded, though he very clearly lost, where, where Biden in his acceptance speech talked about reaching out to all Americans. Macron did something very similar where he said, that those who voted for his opponent were sending a message and it's his obligation and those of his party and all political leaders in the country to listen to that. So I thought that's a sign of, of hope as well. And maybe that's a good place for us to end. You're listening to The Francis Effect. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalt, and I'm here with Dan Horan and Heidi Schlumpf. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss a variety of topics from a perspective informed by our shared Catholic faith. In 1971, about four dozen Catholic sisters met in Washington, D.C. to discuss how to make the country a better place. The next year, they founded Network an organization of Catholic sisters that lobbies for social justice in the nation's laws. Last week, Network celebrated its 50th anniversary with a gala event and two days of advocacy training. What started with a handful of women religious has grown to be an influential nonprofit organization with two dozen staffers and volunteers and 100,000 members and supporters, all working for the common good. Over the last five decades, Network has lobbied for laws and policies that reflect Catholic social justice teaching, including on issues of poverty and economic justice, war and peace, the environment, and health care. Network was instrumental in 2010 in helping to pass the Affordable Care Act, which drastically reduced the numbers of Americans without health insurance. The group is perhaps best known for its nuns on the bus tours and the visibility of former executive director Sister Simone Campbell, who was a speaker at the 2012 Democratic National Convention. Last year, Network named its first layperson as executive director, Mary Novak. Novak told Global Sisters Report, a project of the National Catholic Reporter, that the need for network has not gone away, saying, quote, we're going to do what the sisters have always done, which is to stay true to Catholic social teaching, end quote. Heidi, network staffers are often quoted in NCR articles. 
What's been your experience with the group, and how do you see its importance in today's political climate? Yes, I think it's extremely important in today's political climate. And to reference our previous two stories where we're talking about right-wing being synonymous with Catholic, you have this prophetic, progressive voice out in U.S. politics in the organization of Network. And they're they're created specifically to do political lobbying when, you know, so many other groups are not doing direct lobbying. So the kinds of issues that Network is involved in, as you mentioned, issues of poverty and economic justice and racial justice in international affairs and development work, in issues around peace and justice, war, the death penalty. These are issues that we're writing about all the time at NCR. So we often find ourselves talking to, whether it's the executive director there, there's so many staffers, many of them religious sisters, who are very, very well versed in the issues and the legislation. So a reporter's dream to have somebody who can help explain. I mean, I remember when I was writing about the census, there was someone at, at Network who just knew so much about Republican attempts to try to affect the census 2020. So they, they're they a great organization, and obviously because of NCR's emphasis on the work of Religious Sisters with our project Global Sisters Report, we're often covering this organization that, you know, now has been around for five decades. I think it is very important. I'm be- going to be curious to see where Network moves going forward. So Sister Simone retired last year. She had worked very hard. Um, along with folks from the Catholic Health Association to help get the Affordable Care Act over the finish line, despite opposition from some Catholic leaders around these sort of exaggerated issues around abortion. And Obama even thanked her publicly for that and said they couldn't have done it without their last-minute lobbying and, and helping some Democrats to be able to get on board with it. So that is a huge accomplishment for Network to celebrate, and I know they did celebrate that at their gala event. Our news editor uh, attended on Friday night, as did a representative from Global Sisters Report, Sister Michelle uh, Mork, who is one of, works with all of our sister columnists. And it'll be interesting to see where they go forward with uh, a new lay executive director and also just given the political tenor of the time. I mean, we just got done discussing the craziness of a Catholic like Ron DeSantis possibly running for president. And so there's all we had this whole attack on our democracy with the January 6th issue. And so I just think it'll be very interesting to see how involved they stay. We need them more than ever. Yeah, I just want to echo all of that. I think Network does a a tremendous service on behalf of Catholic teaching, and I think that gets lost. There are a lot of independent lobbying or advocacy groups that are 501c3 or or those are nonprofit. There's I can't remember the designation now. It's 501c4 maybe is the is the lobbying designation in, in the U.S. code. But the they, they tend to be these kind of think tanks like the so-called Catholic Bioethics Institute or something to that effect out of Philadelphia, which is basically an anti-LGBTQ propaganda machine, something that goes after it's very transphobic in, in a lot of its publications and, and and white papers and the, and the like. What Network does is do what Jesus calls us to do. I think the fundamental principles that guide the advocacy and, and you know, lobbying gets a bad name, but all lobbying means in its fundamental kind of orientation is getting the issues before those who can make a difference. 
And so who is is in the room? Who is meeting with representatives? Who is keeping tabs on what's happening in on Capitol Hill, what's happening in different parts of the country and al- allowing others to know, hey, people of faith, are you concerned about the structural evil of capital punishment or the need for prison reform in this country? Hey, here's an opportunity to have your voice be heard by your elected representatives. Hey, are you concerned about issues like abortion or some other issues? Hey, pay attention to this. Are you concerned about immigration, migration, the treatment of women and girls at the border, sex trafficking and the rest? These are the kinds of issues that network is placing front and center. And I I think 50 years is a tremendous accomplishment. They've been doing tremendous work for a long time. But as Heidi said, I think one of the most significant elements is the the work that was done on behalf of the Affordable Care Act back in, in 2009 and 2010, but and also credit to the Catholic Health Association, which also broke ranks from the USCCB that was having none of it for reasons that I would say retrospectively are probably more politically oriented or ideologically oriented than they were in the content of the legislation, but that's an aside. I will say about the the relatively new executive director, Mary She's a classmate of mine at Washington Theological Union in D.C., and so I was so excited to hear about her appointment to that position. I've been very impressed with all the work that's been done since then, and of course, her predecessors have been doing tremendous work. One of my best friends, an occasional listener to this podcast, is a professor of political science, and he spent, before going on to further grad school, spent two years as an intern lobbying for Network in D.C. So I've gotten to know the wonderful folks at Network and have participated in a couple of their panels, especially during the pandemics and virtual programming, and think the world of the tremendous work they're doing. So if you are listening to this podcast and you are hearing about Network, the Catholic Social Justice Lobby for the first time, please check it out, networklobby.org, I believe, and learn some more. Well, I know that I have come across the work of Network not only in direct lobbying circles, but also in unexpected places. So I, I, I went with Lisa Sharon Harper uh, on a trip a couple of years ago around the Gulf of Mexico. We started in New Orleans, Louisiana. We were in Sugarland outside of Dallas, Texas. And then we, we went down to the border and were working with interviewing some migrant workers down there at the border. And we found representatives from Network in all of those places and, and were interfacing with them in those many places. But then also the times when I have gone to Washington, D.C. or to New York City and had meetings with academics around religion and public policy. I find that representatives of Network are there, too. And so I, basically everywhere that I'm going, I'm, I'm, I'm seeing the, the presence and the, the gentle influence of these representatives. And so that is one way of just saying anecdotally, it's a tremendously effective organization because they just keep showing up. And I'm very, very happy to encounter them whenever I do. And I've had a chance a, a couple times to cross paths with Sister Simone Campbell and have always come away from those conversations having learned a great deal and also just having absorbed some wisdom of what it's like to be in the struggle for years and years and years. I mean, Miles Horton of the Highlander Folk School where, you know, the Southern Christian Leadership Council and Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee had meetings during the civil rights movement. He talked about the long haul and network is a real long haul movement. And so it's good to be able to celebrate with them in their five decades of service. Yeah, my experience too is is of running into them in a lot of places and I've really appreciated 
some of the projects of the last couple of years that we're really trying to reach out and address some of the polarization. So I know that uh, Sister Simone was doing a series of roundtables out in rural areas to try to connect with rural Catholics who live in rural areas and just try to understand the disconnect between rural and urban folks. And it was really illuminating, I know, for her. She's a regular columnist now, or contributor for NCR, and so we have occasional commentary pieces from her, and she wrote about her struggles with trying to understand better folks who may disagree with some of the Catholic social teaching issues that Network advocates for. I also know they did a lot in the 20 election in terms of, especially even in the mid of, middle of COVID with virtual town halls, meeting with folks to talk to them about some of the disinformation they were hearing about that Catholics could only vote for Donald Trump, that it was wrong as a Catholic to be able to vote for a Democrat given the issue of, of legalized abortion. So just a lot of great work. And I'm always impressed with the number of young people who are involved with Network or working there. I do think a lot of this emphasis on social justice issues is very attractive to young Catholics who want to get to the nation's capital and make a difference in our country. So shout out to them for all the work that they do and and keep up the good work. They certainly have a really tough task on their plate, given, again, where where the church and the political connections seem to have been recently and seem to be going. So we just want to say to our friends at Network Lobby, congratulations on 50 years. We hope for 50 more and more and more beyond that. Thank you for everyone who is on our listening audience who does prayerful work for the common good and who is concerned for the least of these among us. We're so grateful that you're with us on these journeys. We're hoping that you are having a blessed Easter season and that you are remaining healthy and wise during these trying times. Uh, On behalf of Father Dan and Heidi, we'll be back in a couple of weeks with more conversations. We're so glad that you joined us today. I'm David Dalt for The Francis Effect. Thank you for being with us. The Francis Effect is produced by Sandberg Media LLC and is recorded remotely in Chicago, Illinois and South Bend, Indiana. It's edited by me at the William Adams Studios in Hyde Park on Chicago's beautiful South Side. The opinions of this program are our own and do not reflect the positions of any organizations with which we may be affiliated. We want to give a shout out to the Salt and Light Catholic Media Foundation. They are not affiliated with our program, but they did give us their kind permission to use the name The Francis Effect, and we appreciate it very much. Please check out their good work at slmedia.org. This show is made possible in part by our Patreon supporters, and if you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod. We appreciate it very much. Please follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Both of those are at francisfxpod, and our website is also francisfxpod.com. Please tell your friends about the show, and if you're here for the first time, we have seasons and seasons of episodes that you can go back to and listen to for your heart's content. We're so glad that you're here. Heidi and Father Daniel and I will be back in about two weeks. We're looking forward to being with you then. Thank you again for listening.